the Catholic Channel Sirius XM 129 presents Just Love with your host, Monsignor Kevin Sullivan, Executive Director of Catholic Charities of the Archdiocese of New York. Welcome back to Just Love. I'm Monsignor Kevin Sullivan. We come to you every week and we hope you join us every week for our conversations about what is going on in the world. We look at the main problems or problems and issues through the lens of our Catholic social teaching. We look at it primarily through the dignity of the human person. But the dignity of the human person is enhanced by family, where it's supportive, where there's a mutual collaboration, respect for one another, building up of each other. It's enhanced when we participate in the public sphere. We add to the civic engagement of of one another and try to create a society that fosters the dignity of human person with justice and with compassion. We also deal with things throughout the world, solidarity. It's not just about our own neighbors across the street, not even in our own towns or in our own country, but how does what we do impact what's going on throughout the world? Work is critically important. So the dignity of workers and the dignity of the workplace, that is very, very important to our Catholic perspective. And we always look out for those who are most vulnerable, those who are poor. They have a high claim on our resources and on our attention. And we also look at God's creation, the world. How are we taking care of it? The first book of the Bible, Genesis, spoke about how we are the stewards of that creation, and what are we doing to take care of it? So those are some of the things that we look at and the values that we have, and we see how they are impacting what is going on in in our world. And so today we're again going to talk about uh, nature and when disaster comes and how that impacts different parts of our world. Last week, we spoke about um, Hurricane Ian in Ian in Florida. This week, we're going to see how Hurricane Fiona has impacted Puerto Rico and the Dominican Republic. And then we're going to talk a little bit about what's going on in the public square, midterm elections in, in Georgia. So I hope you find today's conversation to be something that is interesting, enlightening, and hope that you uh, kind of enjoy the guests that Tom has lined up for us. Tom, uh, why don't we go to our first guest? Our first guest is Frankie Miranda, who is the Chief Executive Officer of the Hispanic Federation. And the Hispanic Federation has been doing quite a bit in trying to deal with um, and trying to respond to uh, Hurricane uh, Fiona in Puerto Rico. And so we're delighted that he is with us. Frankie Miranda, thank you for joining us on Just Love. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor. Great. You know, I'm not sure that um, uh, that all of our listeners know all of the things that you have been doing. So maybe before we get into that, could you tell listeners about your, your background and how you came now to be the CEO of the Hispanic Federation. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for that. Um, You know, um, the Federation, let's start with the Federation. It's an umbrella organization uh, started in New York City, 
uh, as a need of making sure that organizations that were uh, Latinx-led, Latinx-serving organizations had um, representation and the resources that they needed for capacity building, technical assistance, and a place within the very diverse uh, nonprofit sector and philanthropy sector, originally in New York City. So from a handful of organizations in 1990 when we started, uh, now the Federation 32 years later is uh, in 41 states, uh, DC and in Puerto Rico supporting organizations doing direct health and service providers. And of course, you know, more after Hurricanes Irma and Maria, and because of the call from the diaspora, we have been working in the recovery of Puerto Rico, and most recently with Hurricane Fiona. Uh, as per my background, you know, I started in nonprofit organizations because my background in the arts, and then um, since 2006, in, in, I have been working at the Federation uninterruptedly, and then, you know, in late December of 2019, uh, the board gave me the opportunity to be at the helm of the organization. And uh, it has been quite an interesting ride uh, because of all the different challenges that we have been facing in the last, you know, two years and a half. Well, 2019 is right before we closed down for the pandemic in, in March of 2020. So that was quite a, an introduction to that position. It is. And I completely agree with you. I have a different idea of what 2020 was going to be. We were thinking about, you know, continuing our work and focusing a lot on civic engagement, census and things that we were hoping that 2020 was going to bring to us. And on my first day with the team after the holiday uh, break, it was the earthquake in Puerto Rico. So we needed to start working immediately on reimagining that network of care that we were supporting in Puerto Rico to meet the challenges of the those that were needing uh, help after the earthquakes. And then a few weeks later, it was the lockdowns and the pandemic and also in making sure that our organizations, and you know this very well, Monsignor, is that you know our organizations never closed their doors. They were the frontline uh, providers, especially for those most vulnerable in our community, which are the undocumented and the mixed status families. So very proud of the work that we have been doing as a collective together to support the nonprofit sector. So, so Frankie, this is just a little bit of me being a little bit nosy. Okay, so, so what? Tell me, what did you do in the arts before you moved over to, uh, to kind of get into the current work? What were you doing in the arts? Well, the, I, I was part of a performing arts um, a spectrum, you know, doing a little bit of everything, acting, uh, being part of productions. And uh, when, what brought me to New York was to study performance studies uh, at NYU. And at some point, you know, after my master's and getting uh, accepted to the PhD program, which, you know, uh, technically I ran out of money. And there was not enough enough money to continue. I said, I'm going to stay for a couple of years and then I'm going to go back to Puerto Rico. So 26 years later, uh, it just seems that the master plan completely changed. And because of my association with the arts and nonprofits, that's how I got my my. Uh, career started really on uh, nonprofit capacity building and technical assistance and so, as a grant maker. So, so Frank, I have to ask ask you this: given your name, you're not uh, you're not masquerading as Lin Manuel Miranda, are you? But under a different name. Well, you know, it's like I like to say in many circles that I am the least famous Miranda clan, <laughs> member of the clan. Um, 
but yes, you know, um, we it's, it's an interesting uh, combination of stuff because the, the founding president of the Hispanic Federation, Luis Miranda, father of Lee Manuel Miranda, um, has been uh, part of the Federation family for these 32 years. It's been an incredible legacy. And Lee Manuel grew up at the Federation. So that's right. why Lee Manuel Miranda is so close to us. And he has become kind of like, you know, our padrino, as we like to call it, our godfather when it comes to our fundraising efforts and raising awareness on the issues that we care the most. Great. I, and I, uh, I consider myself privileged to be a colleague and have known uh, Luis, uh, the founder of the Hispanic Federation for, for many years, because I'm old and decrepit. So I know Luis for many, many years and I'm delighted to call him a friend and a, and a colleague. So, um, um, but, but Frankie, we're speaking with Frankie Miranda, who is the chief executive officer, president of the Hispanic Federation. Now let's go to kind of a little bit of, you know, the current sadness, tragedy, devastation. Um, Talk to us about the work that, well, what you've seen and the work that uh, currently you've been doing in Puerto Rico after the uh, after Hurricane Fiona. So I think that um, we need to go back to what was happening in Puerto Rico uh, pre-Hurricanes Ermin Maria five years ago. Okay. Um, the island uh, declared um, their, their obligations, their debt unpayable. And because of a uh, little oversight, let's say, uh, ironically, um, uh, oversight from Congress when they were rewriting bankruptcy laws, they did not include the word territories into these laws. So therefore, Puerto Rico, as a jurisdiction, did not have an instrument to organize or in an organized way restructure its debt. So this created a concern from the diaspora on how the claims of Puerto Rico and the American citizens that happen to live in the island of Puerto Rico were going to be heard or going to be uh, paid attention by the rest of the United States and Congress that really had the opportunity to do something for the island. So there was a big mobilization of the Puerto Rican diaspora. We created a, we organized a day of action of Puerto Rico in Washington, D.C. to raise awareness about the challenges of the territory in the particular a financial situation. By the time that Hurricane Emma hit Puerto Rico, and then couple, less than two weeks later, Maria was imminent, we knew that the infrastructure of Puerto Rico was already in a lot of, um, you know, needed a lot of upgrades. It was not ready because of the financial situation. So th- that same group organized, and then we started providing aid to Puerto Rico right after Hurricane Maria to make sure that when local government collapsed and federal government was nowhere to be found, that it was going to be nonprofit organizations, the one that were going to be helping people in the different remote areas of the island, that they were going to be finding themselves as first responders. And we wanted to be very, very um, um, intentional in providing the resources for that. Five years later, $50 million later, we have seen incredible, incredible innovation. Um, resiliency centers, community health clinics, uh, community um, 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 comedores comunitarios, or like the community kitchens um, all over the island and many projects that were re- doing reforestation, doing mitigation, all of that pushed by the nonprofit sector 
But then again, you know, we see that there's still a lot to do. And we were trying to just raise awareness of that. And then the things that we needed to do in order to make Puerto Rico more resilient. But then Hurricane Fiona hit and it gave us uh, our worst nightmares became real. And we saw immediately that the vulnerability of the uh, electric grid, the island went completely dark. Many of the parts of the islands that had some sort of mitigation plans to avoid flooding, it failed because there was no power to um, make sure that the pumps were able to just push the water out. So we saw all of the island who has been delayed on its reconstruction being put back down in, onto their knees because we are not ready. And there has been a delay in the federal aid that needed to get to Puerto Rico. So we still see that there are enormous challenges and people are re-traumatized by this experience who was in comparison with Maria, a very, very small storm in comparison when it hit Puerto Rico category one versus a category five or four that it was when it hit Puerto Rico Maria. So uh, we're speaking with Frankie Miranda, who is the president and chief executive officer of the Hispanic Federation. We're speaking about um, Hurricane Fiona, but I'm so glad that he provided us with the broader context and the history that goes back uh, a number of years that provides the background. So, uh, again, I don't know if it's easy to it's probably not easy to compare, but um, how would you compare like the damage um, and the devastation of Maria with compared with Fiona? Very interesting question, because there are uh, parts of the island that were doing better than others when it comes to uh, the impact of the storm. Uh, the storm hit heavily the south and the southwest of the island. So some of the parts of the north fared very well when it comes to damages and also resiliency. Also, we see an incredible um, income inequality in Puerto Rico, where we have seen a lot of high income earners being taken, invited to establish their, um, their residence in Puerto Rico. And that also has created some sort of pockets on the island with better infrastructure. But the disparities and the inequities that were so, that made the island so vulnerable are not going away. These luscious green of the island highs and a really extreme poverty in many parts of the island that is almost unbelievable that this is part of the United States. Puerto Rico continues to have high, the, one of the highest or the highest levels of poverty when it comes to child poverty, when it comes to uh, senior population, the island's um, infrastructure completely when it comes to healthcare has been compromised. So what we saw here is that these relatively smaller or less potent phenomenon created almost the same circumstances that create but was created by Maria five years ago. And it's almost like you know comparing you know a patient that already had an underlying condition and getting the, the flu, right? It's like you are going to be more vulnerable than when you if you were a healthy patient. So that's what's happening with Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico continues to be extremely vulnerable because most of the federal aid that has been approved and that have been catching some of the headlines about billions of dollars approved to Puerto Rico, only a fraction have gotten to the island of Puerto Rico. And it's because 
the territory as it is has different 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 challenges that other jurisdictions such other states do not have when it comes to access to federal funds and even new conditions have been imposed on some of these funding by the previous federal administration that has been affecting the island so we can probably say with uh, with certainty that the island is more than three years behind on its recovery and we know that these natural phenomena are going to continue happening but the disaster is almost for sure we can say is man-made so frankie let me you have been to puerto rico since the storm correct correct and what have you seen well i had the privilege to uh host president biden coming to the island uh on monday we were able to host uh, President Biden and the First Lady in what we created a day of service where we were impacting 12 communities, uh, community leaders and organizations came together to to basically distribute food for their communities and have a one-on-one meeting with President Biden to talk about the specific challenges that we see on the island. And aside from seeing the devastation uh, that is still uh, people in the island. My family still in Puerto Rico. Uh, I, my friends, my dear friends are in Puerto Rico, and they're still going through uh, the emergency. Um, what we see here is that we have noticed that there is a new administration willing to help, and that there is going to be some funds that are going to get to Puerto Rico. But there are still enormous challenges that only nonprofit organizations can be quick and on their feet to meet the challenges. And that's why we have continued to raise funds and awareness around the importance of the nonprofits in Puerto Rico that have been doing extraordinary work, but there's still the extreme poverty that we still see and the vulnerability that we see on many cases on hospitals depending on backup generators to perform their general, uh, um, their general operations continues to be extremely, extremely alarming. So, so Frankie, I, I couldn't agree with you more about the importance of nonprofits. And um, one of the things that, you know, sometimes when I talk to our people in New York here, that they're a little surprised by, that one of our New York Catholic Charities agencies, the New York Foundling, has 46 Head Start centers in different places on the island because they serve the community here in New York. And when I think it was in the 50s or the 60s, when some of those families went back to Puerto Rico, they asked if they would begin to establish some programs in different communities there. And I myself have visited uh, some of those um, Head Start centers, uh, San Juan, in in Cuomo, in, in a few other places. And I just see how important they are to those communities. And the two communities continue to be extremely linked. New York and Puerto Rico continue to be incredibly linked. The diaspora here has been the fuel of all of these relief efforts and the compassion and the understanding that these are also American citizens that happen to live in the island of Puerto Rico. The term of the, the concept of the diaspora has been transformed because of the economic and financial crisis in Puerto Rico and because of the natural disaster. So the diaspora used to be that person that left 30 years ago or that right. cousin that came to visit one summer. But now it's just a person that left five years ago or the person that just came back. It is about our 
um, grandparents, it's about our cousins and brothers or sisters, you know, the loved ones that we have in this constant movement of people because of the circumstances in, on the island. So I think that the work that you do and the Catholic charities do with the Hispanic Federation and others, even though that we're headquartered here, completely has an enormous impact on the island and influence the policy because if they are not well taken care of in Puerto Rico, immediately is going to affect what's happening here because of the air bridge that is happening. And also in other states, let's say, for example, Central Florida that has become also a magnet for a lot of the Puerto Rican community where we also have offices and we have been helping with some of the people that had been displaced because of the natural phenomenon. So, so Frankie, let me ask you um, a little bit of a question that, that probably is a little bit sensitive, but I've heard it and I just would like a little bit your reaction that given some of the neglect, some of the, the difficulties in, in Puerto Rico, you know, I've heard it said that, you know, a lot of people or some people in Puerto Rico are kind of losing hope and that some of those who maybe are even more professional, they're saying there's no hope and they're kind of moving, as you said, Central Florida, and that that makes it even more difficult for the island. So, I mean, I share that with you. I've heard it. I'm sure you've heard it. What's your kind of reflection on that? Unfortunately, there is an actual brain exodus uh, in Puerto Rico. Uh, many professionals that have been struggling to uh, make their make their you know be able to survive. Uh, people that have gone to careers that require extensive training, especially in the medical field, that they cannot even pay their their student loans or being mm-hmm. able to pay their obligations. So um, we know of cases of of extremely talented doctors that were having two, the equivalent of two, three jobs working in Puerto Rico and sometimes in the Virgin Islands, working seven days a week, and they couldn't take it any longer. And then they moved to the state sites and they're better paid, they're better reimbursed, because right now there's no equity in the federal programs that take care of Medicaid, Medicare, and many other uh, programs. So they were unable to survive in Puerto Rico and they are thriving in the United States. And they live with a lot of guilt for leaving their families behind and leaving the island. It is challenging to find sometimes a specialist on the island because they are so limited and there are so many needs um, that it creates also a problem of quality of life. So that is why it's upon all of us and also for the federal government to act and ensure that Puerto Rico's economy is stabilized, that Puerto Rico is rebuilding resiliently, and that we can keep people in Puerto Rico healthy, employed, and that they can survive. Because the reality is that those that that decreasing population in Puerto Rico was out of necessity, not because people really wanted to leave the island. So, you know, Frankie, since you brought it up, I mean, and again, you know, my own limited knowledge of the history there, um, it did seem for a while, and I'm going back probably 20 or 30 years, where there was some federal tax policy that did help some economic uh, activity in Puerto Rico, but that I, if I, if my memory serves me well, that it kind of got phased out in the 1990s 
which was not helpful to the economy of Puerto Rico. Is my memory serving me correctly? You are absolutely right that there was a um, an incentive for American companies to establish operations in Puerto Rico. Uh, it was called popularly the 936 because of the tax code number um, in the Internal Revenue Service. The 936 allowed American companies to establish in Puerto Rico with very uh, uh, lucrative or uh, attractive incentives to come to Puerto Rico, uh, cheap labor, skilled labor, and uh, um, but it was led to phase out um, many people in hopes to trigger some sort of like political change on the island. But at the same time, it coincided with the island having to borrow more and more and more because there was not enough economic activity on the island. So the phasing out of the 936 coincides with the, the start of the economic crisis in Puerto Rico that led to a, a complete obsolete infrastructure, not good maintenance of the infrastructure that created the enormous impact that Hurricane Maria had in Puerto Rico, especially around the electric grid. Let's remind everybody that is listening right now that the longest blackout in American history happened in Puerto Rico after Hurricane Maria. And the official toll around 3,000 deaths, but some other experts said that it was about over 5,000 deaths that occurred in Puerto Rico happened directly related to the lack of electric power. People that needed insulin to be refrigerated, people that needed electricity to actually be able to go to the hospital and take, get some sort of like treatment or that they depended on their lives to have some sort of like medical equipment connected to power. So we know that power is related to the actual impact on quality of life. And that is why we continue to be very concerned about the economic stability of the island and how some of this funding that has been approved, around $14 billion has been approved for the reconstruction of the grid. And what we are advocating is to make sure that since the government of Puerto Rico is on precarious financial uh, situation, that some of the waivers that there should be waivers on some of the requirements of matching funds that sometimes are required in order to access some of this funding. So that is why your memory serves you very, very well. This was the start of what we see now is a full-blown crisis in Puerto Rico. It was the decrease of economic activity because of the face-outs of the 936. Frankie Miranda, thank you so much. I'm kind of very, very proud to call you a a colleague and very proud of the work that the Hispanic Federation is doing in Puerto Rico and in New York. And I think, what'd you say, 42 states that you are are doing it. And um, so just thank you for all the work you're doing. and, And thanks for the time that you spent with us on Just Love today. I, I hope that this is the first of many conversations on this show. So thank you so much. Would love to. Frankie, you have an open invitation. Whenever you have a topic you want to talk about, just let us know and you're more than welcome to come back. Thank you so much. Frankie Miranda, the president, the CEO of the Hispanic Federation. In my book, he is not the lesser Miranda. He is the very important Miranda who is doing tremendous amount of good work. Hey, Tom, why don't we take a break? 
just love, just love God, just love your neighbor, just love yourself. And our world will be more just and it will be more compassionate. We'll be back in just a moment on the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129. Let's get back to Just Love and your host, Monsignor Kevin Sullivan. Welcome back to Just Love. Just do it. Just love God. Just love your neighbor. Just love yourself. And our world will be more just and it will be more compassionate. We speak about those topics that are of relevant to us, which are many, many topics through the lens of our Catholic social teaching. We just spoke about, again, another natural disaster, Hurricane Fiona in Puerto Rico. And as we're getting close to elections, we're going to speak about the upcoming midterm elections. Elections are important because we believe that voting is one of the responsibilities that we have as Catholics to participate in the public in the public square. And so uh, I'm really pleased that uh, for the next part of our show, we're going to be speaking with Frank Mulcahy, who is the uh, director of the Georgia Catholic Conference. And we're going to speak about the midterm elections. Um, so I'm, I'm delighted that uh, Frank Mulcahy will, is joining us. And uh, we're going to talk about how the church does interact in the public square, how the church does get engaged in public policy issues, and how it does lend a voice to trying to make 
the world more just and trying to make it more compassionate. You know, sometimes people get that a little confused about um, where, you know, that we get involved in partisan politics, that we support candidates, that we take positions. But that's one of the reasons why we're going to have a conversation to kind of make some of those distinctions and get a little bit of a feel for what is uh, going on in the world. So I'm delighted that Frank Mulcahy, the director of the Georgia Catholic Conference, is with us. Frank, thank you for taking the time to be with us on Just Love. Uh, Senior, it's my pleasure to be here. Great. So, you know, listen, for, we've had other people from Catholic conferences on, but maybe just give our listeners just a little bit of an overview of what a Catholic conference is and if there's any unique features to the Georgia Catholic Conference. Share that with our listeners so that, you know, they might become a little bit smarter about how the church operates in the public sphere. <clears throat> well, Monsignor, the uh, Catholic Conference exists in, uh, I would say, about 40 of the United States. And each one of us is independent and works for the bishops in that particular state. In Georgia, we have two dioceses, the Archdiocese of Atlanta and the Diocese of Savannah. So I work principally for the, the bishops of those dioceses. And the purpose is to study legislation as it is proposed, and then give it a Catholic review. And when I say that, it is not to force Catholicism on anyone, but rather to see the common good that the church supports, and then to advocate that with the legislators and other government agencies. So, Frank, let me ask you this, but shouldn't you guys be staying out of politics? Shouldn't, shouldn't Catholics kind of go to Mass on Sunday and pray and not get involved in all this political stuff? Well, we do not get involved in political races. We observe what's going on, uh, and we have some interesting races in Georgia this year, but we do not support or oppose any candidate or any political party. We do, however, try to work with uh, all legislators who have been elected to do what we believe is the right thing. Uh, when you say that I know there are questions that people ask about whether the church should be involved in politics, I would say I think the church needs to be involved in public policy. That is helping to shape the policies that affect all the people of the state or of our country in a way that is beneficial to all. Okay. Well said. Um, and you probably have to say that 27 times <laughs> because you probably get misunderstood 28 times for what you do. <laughs> That's correct. <laughs> so you've been at this for a while, right, Frank? I started, uh, I started with my predecessor in uh, 1997. Okay. And he retired in 2002. And I have, uh, continued the operation. Now, when I say that, you ask for something unique. I think one of the unique things about Georgia, as opposed to other states, including New York, uh, I am the whole staff. We do not have the number of 
uh, associate directors and even support staff that other states with more dioceses uh, have. So it. But I becomes, bet you it help. I bet you it helps you for decision making. Well, as long as the bishops are, <laughs> as long as the bishops agree, I don't have a. I don't need another committee meeting. Yeah, but you. But you're, you're even luckier than most places. You only have two bishops. Two bishops. That's Who's, right. See, why I've never gotten involved in kind of a lot of that stuff is because, as I have said very often to Cardinal Dolan, it's bad enough that you have one bishop. Yeah. I said having more than one really, you work off time in purgatory with that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I have, uh, and I've been very fortunate with with the bishops we have had uh, in my tenure here. Uh, current bishops, uh, Archbishop Hartmeyer, uh, and his predecessor Cardinal Gregory, now Cardinal Gregory, right. And then uh, Archbishop Dunellen, who was, I'm sorry, Archbishop Dunahue, who was before him, and then two bishops in Savannah, the current Bishop Parks, and then Bishop Boland before him. So, so Frank, um, what you said is you don't get involved in political races, but you do review public policies to, with a Catholic lens, to see how they either foster or inhibit the common good. What are some of the uh, things you're reviewing in Georgia? What's on, what's on your radar screen in Georgia these days? Well, uh, as in most years, we're not 100% with the Democrats. We're not 100% with the Republicans. But we look at the different issues. Uh, so I'll just mention a couple. Okay. Uh, we, um, we do look at abortion, abortion-related uh, legislation. And of course, this is a a new little world for us now, uh, since the Dobbs decision was an, uh, passed, issued in uh, in June. Now, in Georgia, we have been very fortunate and able to pass some legislation in the last twenty years that is uh, supportive of life. The and the most recent one was a bill passed in two thousand nineteen, which is referred to as the heartbeat bill which prohibits legislation with prohibits abortion with some exceptions uh, once a heartbeat is detected, which is roughly six weeks into a pregnancy. That uh, bill, after it was enacted and signed, was enjoined for a period of time. Uh, But once the Dobbs decision came down, that is now effective. We will... uh, be looking at what additional legislation we might propose, uh, but also looking for the little uh, sneaky little pieces that some legislators like to put into legislation uh, that would be contrary to our interests. Um, So I'm not asking you a position Mm. question. I'm Mm. asking you an analytical question. Um, let me just state what I think the common understanding is and just see how you think it plays out in Georgia. I mean, I think the common kind of wisdom, whether it was wise mm-hmm. or accurate, is midterm elections, the sitting party in power loses seats. Everybody was saying, you know, uh, the late winter that, okay, the Democrats are going to lose both houses of, of Congress, blah, blah, blah. And then, the overturning of Roe v. Wade and Dobbs 
And now people are saying, well, you know, maybe not so much because that's a very important issue to a lot of voters. How, how are you reading that playing itself out in Georgia? Well, on, on the national level, we have uh, two candidates for the United States Senate. Right. And they're almost they've made a little one of them made a little news lately. We even hear about <laughs> um, football players up in New York. That's right. That's right. Um, and, and abortion is in the middle of that, right. that um, most of your uh, listeners probably realize that yeah. uh, Herschel Walker, former football player at the University of Georgia, has uh, been accused, at least, of paying for an abortion for a former girlfriend. Right. But uh, I'm not sure that that is the primary issue floating from either of these two parties in Georgia. Okay. All right. The Democrats are, are uh, pushing on the abortion issue. The Republicans are looking more at the economy. Yeah. And so they're in two different places on some of these issues. Yeah. Okay. I've, you know, again, I certainly think that I would say that that's playing out in other places too. I mean, from, you know, from, I think our perspective where we really believe that, that human life should be protected. Um, you know, there are some less than sanguine polls out there, which indicate that that position may not be quite a winning as much a winning position as we would like it to be. So it's probably not surprising that the different sides are kind of um, taking the position that you articulated. I, I think that's true. I think the uh, Republicans who in, in Georgia have right. the governor's office, plus they have majorities in both houses. They uh, did what they did. They passed the heartbeat bill. Anybody who's doing any following of it in Georgia knows that was done. They know the governor signed it. So he's not saying too much about it. He's yeah. focusing on the economy, which is pretty good in Georgia right now. Right. The Democrats are emphasizing the their position that uh, there should be more freedom, in fact, complete freedom to have an uh, have an abortion. And they're they're banking on uh, a lot of voters who will uh, find that as an important uh, an important role. Now. In November, we'll find out. Yeah. So, Frank, let me we're speaking with Frank uh, Mulcahy, who is the 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 lone man standing in the Georgia Catholic Conference. He's been there for. 20 some odd years. Um, so so you're, let me take advantage of your perspective. Sure. Because again, from what we hear is that, you know, Georgia has become a little bit more of a competitive state than maybe it was 20 years ago. So what's your reading of kind of what's going on in, in Georgia over the two decades you've been sitting where you're sitting? I think it has moved slowly from a very conservative uh, position uh, and signified mainly by the Republican majorities. Right. 
there are, if you'll put it this way, liberal issues that are getting um, getting some read. I think that was one of the things that helped get uh, two United States senators elected last year. But to say that it has uh, moved to a purple state, I think that right now is uh, a little bit a little bit of an overstatement. Right. I think it is generally a pretty conservative state. Yeah. Okay. Um, so again, based upon your two decades or more of experience, how do you think that we Catholics are most effective when we're trying to influence public policy to foster the, cuff, the common good? When are we effective? When aren't we so effective? I think we are effective when we are united at the grassroots. Legislators, certainly in Georgia, listen to what's going on uh, in their district. There are 180 seats in the House and there are 56 seats in the Senate. And they're close enough to the people to understand what's going on. When we get our Catholic people united behind an issue, they they have a big impact. I think that's been very true in the abortion issue. Right. There are other issues that we support in Catholic social teaching that uh, we are not as united on as I might like to see us. Immigration reform is probably one. Um, the um, sometimes different views on education and how we're going to uh, how we are going to um, fund education in Georgia. And the thir third area that I think uh, we need a lot of development of our grassroots, our grassroots Catholics in the pew, is the death penalty. Georgia does have the death penalty. Uh, we have made several efforts to at least get some modifications to the to the death penalty statute. And it's it's been difficult and we don't have a lot of grassroots support for it. Yeah. Is the, again, just because mm -hmm. it's an issue that has been raised recently in New York, um, does gun control, gun safety, is that an issue that raises itself up in Georgia? Oh, very definitely. The, uh, I think we probably go in, in the opposite direction from New York. Right. We have, uh, well, we've had two major bills since 2014 uh, which get referred to as the Guns Anywhere bill. And <laughs> then we had uh, a bill passed last year, which they call the Constitutional Carry Bill, right. which is that you don't need any kind of a license to carry a uh, uh, concealed weapon. Now, you have to meet certain criteria, right. but you don't have to prove that until somebody questions it. Yeah, and I think you're right because... I think um, in New York, one of the one of the thrusts that New York took was to kind of uh, focus on uh, the part of a recent court decision which said you could prohibit guns, I think, in sensitive places and began to, in a widespread way, define that very, very broadly 
and and I if I if if I'm if I remember the news very recently, I think one of the courts said that that's just too broad the way that it was defined. So I think you're right. It probably moves in a different direction. But um, anyway, hey, but Frank, listen, you've been generous with your time. I want to say thank you, and more importantly, thank you for the work that you're you're doing. I, you know, good work, but can be a little lonely sitting there mm-hmm. by yourself. Um, but thank you so much for taking the time to be with us on Just Love. Thank you, Monsignor. My pleasure to be here. Frank Mulcahy, the director of the Georgia Catholic Conference. Tom, we'll take a break. Listeners, just love God, neighbor, self. Our world will be more just and more compassionate. We'll be back in just a moment on the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129. Just do it. Just love. Just check out Monsignor Kevin Sullivan, who's here right now. Take it away, Monsignor. Welcome back to Just Love. Just do it. Just love God. Just love your neighbor. Just love yourself. And our world will be more just and it will be more compassionate. Um, You know, we've talked about... um, 
disaster in Puerto Rico and going back a long time. We've talked about the work of the Georgia uh, Catholic Conference and some of those very important issues. But you know what I want to end our show on? I want to talk about apple picking. (laughs) I've I've done my apple picking um, a week or two ago. And it was just a wonderful experience. Tom, I think we spoke about this. Have you ever gone apple picking? I did a long time ago, Monsignor. Uh, my friend Kathy, who you've met, right. she, used to, she lives up in northern Westchester. So she was a big apple picking person. So I used to go a lot with her. Okay. But I haven't gone in years. I haven't gone in years and years and years. Okay. <laughs> um, did you like it when you went? I, I did. I did. I mean, it's, it's you know, you're outside. You're walking amongst the trees, you know. Uh, I like the way they have them marked off. If it's the same way, still Monsignor, they have the ribbons on the trees. So you can tell the Macintosh from the Golden Delicious and from all the different types. So I did enjoy it. It was it was great. And, you yep. know, and you get apple cider afterward. <laughs> yep. So it's it's so I mean, this has become probably for the past eh, maybe 10 years or so uh, a tradition with my cousin. Now, I don't have any siblings. So my cousins are my closest uh, relatives of, you know, my generation. And so once a year, um, I join my cousin in Connecticut, and we spend the afternoon apple picking. And we have this wonderful orchard that goes back to the 18th century. It goes oh, wow. back to 1746. And it's you know, it's, it's kind of in rural Connecticut, so it's a little bit off the beaten path, not too far away from where my cousin lives. So it's not commercial at all. Very, very nice. Now, when I went a sad day or two ago, it was a great day because they were predicting rain. Mm. And so I think the rain kept a lot of people away. But... Oh. But the rain stayed away, too. So while we were there, it was just a wonderful temperature. Um, it wasn't sunny. And I like cloudy weather, so I don't get sunburned. That's right. <laughs> and there weren't all that many people there. So it was just a wonderful day, as you say, walking, you know, in the trees. And probably we picked about, you know, five or six different varieties of apples. And the problem is. I pick them and then I put them in the bag and I don't remember which is which. So, <laughs> you know, I just mix them all up and they, they all kind of are, are great. But you know what I did, Tom? Nope. We have probably about 40 people who came, come to the eight o'clock mass on Sunday in the chapel of our parish. Okay. And so um, I picked some, We there was some small apples, big apples. So I picked a bunch of the small apples and I kind of gave them out to people nice. who came to the first mass. So it was kind of a uh, kind of fun to do it. And then I made some applesauce. And mm-hmm. so we're on our way. I still have lots <laughs> of apples left that I have to <clears throat> kind of do something with, which I will do something with. So it's um, uh, you're gonna so, make an are you gonna make an apple pie once a year or? Oh yeah, I'll make at least one. But you okay. know what I decided I'm not gonna do. I'm not going to do apple strudel. Okay. And the reason I'm not is because I looked up a recipe and you got to put like seven or eight or nine layers of phyllo dough and just too much work. I'm not into a lot of work. (laughs) Applesauce is great because 
all you have to do is peel the apples and, you know, and, um, you know, cut them into cores or something like that. And mm -hmm. you just put it on the stove and it's done. But when you, but a lot of the other stuff is a little bit, a little bit too much work, but I will work. do apple pie. So, it's, okay, good. So, Excellent. So it's, <laughs> it's good. So anyway, so it's, um, but listen, thank you all for being with us. Um, you know, we talk about, you know, important topics. Hopefully we kind of learn a little bit and we kind of bring our own Catholic values. We think about that. And as our conversation with Frank Mulcahy of the Georgia Catholic Conference, while we don't get involved in political races as a church, we do think that as Catholics, we should lend our voice to policies that make our world more just and make it more compassionate. Our faith and our religion isn't just within a church building. It's not just about praying. It's about how we live, how about our actions help the world to be a better place. So thank you for being with us. Just love God, just love your neighbor, just love yourself. And our world will be more just and it will be more compassionate. We'll be back again next week. Please join us on the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129. You're listening to The Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129.